0: All right. Amen. We have a great, great God and Father. If you would turn to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to continue working our way through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read for us just the first nine verses. But my goal is to get through the chapter this morning. And we'll see if I'm able to do that or not. But one way or the other, I want to... Try to help us see what this chapter is all about and what it says to each of us, regardless of what our testimony might be with regard to our conversion. This chapter is about the conversion of Saul, and ultimately he's going to become Paul as he's more well known, Uh, but this chapter is about how God saved him. And not everybody has the exact same experience Saul had on the road to Damascus, And yet, in a sense, we do have the exact same experience. And I'm hoping we'll see that as we go through it this morning. So let's read together uh, the first nine verses to get started of Acts chapter 9. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Says the word of God. You know, the interesting thing about the society we live in is that, uh, based on recent surveys that have been taken of, People in the church, it appears that most people, whether they are in the church or not, believe that people in general are basically good, which is kind of interesting. Whether you're in the church or not, uh, most people tend to believe that people are basically good. And there are all kinds of implications for that. And Calvin, uh, if you've ever read his Institutes, the very first sentence in his Institutes says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So he says basically all the wisdom, and he's ultimately pointing to the wisdom of God in the word, can be summed up in terms of knowing God as he truly is, and knowing ourselves as we truly are as well. And so what I'd like us to do is to think about what we have here in Acts chapter 9 in terms of these questions. What is truly the human condition? Uh, What does it take for sinners to be saved? And what does it mean to say we are saved by grace? And so that's kind of how I'm approaching this chapter and how I'm approaching this story about how Saul became Paul, how God changed him. Because, like I said, in our society, a lot of people really struggle with the idea that God is good, but they don't seem to struggle with the idea that we are not good. And so it's flipped, because the truth is, God is good. And the Bible says in so many different ways that we are not good, and that's why we need a Savior. And the good news is, Jesus is an able and willing Savior, not for righteous people, but for sinners, for those who really need a Savior. Um, it's interesting, in James chapter 1, James talks about the fact that um, the word is like a mirror. And so when you get up in the morning, like I do sometimes, I get up in the morning, and I never know what my hair is going to look like. And there are times when I'm so glad I have a mirror to check myself before I go out into the world. And the Bible is compared to a mirror by James that allows us to look at ourselves and to see what is really true. You know, how the hair is sticking up in all kinds of places, where there's something left from lunch on my face or whatever it might be. The word shows us what we're really like. And otherwise, we just go through life oblivious to how our hair looks or what food is still left on our face or whatever it might be or what sin is really there in our lives. And so what I want to do is uh, encourage us as we read through Acts chapter 9 and look at some other passages as well uh, to see what the Bible actually says about our true human condition and see how it glorifies the grace of God. We've just sung about His grace to us. And what we'll see this morning hopefully will cause us to praise Him and thank Him even more for His grace. Race. And the first thing that I just want to highlight is, if you look at what we just read in verses 1 through 9, we could see the nature of our human condition in light of uh, Saul's experience. And basically, our human condition is, we prefer God to be dead. Now, at the beginning of this sermon, I'm going to say some things that seem Harsh. And I say them because the Bible says them. But we need to really hear what's being said and try to understand why God would say these things. Um, Nietzsche um, was a German philosopher. His picture is actually on that shirt there that I found online. And he's wearing uh, a modified MAGA hat that actually says, make God dead again. And the question is, why would they put Nietzsche's picture on uh, a T-shirt wearing a hat like that? Well, he said this. He said, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Who will wipe this blood off us? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods? simply to appear worthy of it. Now, he was not bemoaning the fact that in some sense he thought humanity had killed God. He was celebrating the fact. In fact, he was talking in terms of the enlightenment, all the knowledge that was coming to light, so to speak, uh, what science, evolution, and all these things were beginning to supposedly reveal that there really never was a God, It was just made-up stuff. And now our knowledge shows that there really isn't a God, or if he was, as some might say, he's dead, he's gone, he's inconsequential. And so the reality is there is naturally for us as sinners a desire for that to be true. Why? Because then it frees us from any expectations that he might have on our lives. Well, what does this have to do with Saul? In the first couple verses, it talks about Saul breathing threats and murders against Christians. And the Bible says in so many different ways that we as sinners are naturally haters of God. Now, In this picture of Saul being saved, Jesus appears and says, why are you persecuting me? Persecuting Christians? Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Me, Jesus, is God. And so, breathing threats and murders against Christians was to breathe threats and murder against Jesus and therefore against God. Um, If you read uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Lord says... uh, that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but show loving kindness to thousands to those who love me. But there are only two categories there, there's no middle category. There's those who hate God and those who love God. We might say, well, it doesn't seem that way. Well, there's different ways in which it's expressed. Um, what's interesting is even the Lord Jesus used the terms of love and hate when he said in one place in Matthew he says if you love your father or mother more than you love me you can't be my disciple but in Luke he says if you don't hate your father and mother you can't be my disciple so he's talking about an issue of preference if you prefer mother or father or anyone else or anything else above me you can't Truly honor me and worship me and follow me. And so, hatred can be as simple as indifference. It may not be as violent as murder. It can be just, I'd rather have this, or I'd rather have this person rather than God. Because the Bible talks in those ways. For instance, in Matthew 6, it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So it says there's a choice that has to be made. There's going to be hatred and love if you have two masters, because you can't love both. Uh, Or in Romans 1, it talks about, it even uses the phrase haters of God. And then the Lord Jesus, in talking to his disciples, said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now the world isn't, We're not talking about the earth as a physical ball. We're talking about people who are in rebellion against God. And he says very clearly, they've hated me before they hated you. And he says, he who hates me hates my father also. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. And he says, they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So it's not a hatred that is based on things that justify it. It's an unjust hatred of God. There's nothing in God that ought to provoke any kind of violent desire to get rid of him or just complete indifference to him in our lives. And what's interesting is you've got Saul breathing threats and murder against the people of God and therefore against Jesus and therefore against God, who also talks about himself as being... Very zealous for God. And even addresses later on in the book of Acts uh, the Jews, and he says, I was zealous for God just like you are today. But he was talking to unbelievers uh, who weren't worshiping the true God. They were worshiping God in a sense. And so it highlights the fact that you can be passionately and sincerely wrong. And he was at this point in his life. He was passionately and sincerely wrong. And why? Why can that be, or how could that be? Well, in Romans chapter 1, it says we suppress the truth. We can see the truth about God in the world, and yet we suppress it. And that's why Nietzsche and others uh, could deny the existence of God, even though the world, the creation, proclaims his existence. It also says in Uh, John 5, that we suppress the truth. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders and said, you search the scriptures, trying to find life, but they testify of me, but you will not come to me that you might have life. So they're looking at the truth and yet suppressing it at the same time, whether it's in the world or in the word. And, And yet still at the same time, in some sense, being zealous for God and the Jewish people were. They would argue the reason why, and Paul would have argued, or excuse me, Saul at this point would have argued that it was his zeal, zealousness for God that drove him to persecute the believers, which is just a fascinating thing. And so the, the point is, when we think about what is the true condition of man, apart from God's gracious work in our lives, we prefer God to be dead, even though we may be passionate and sincere about our worship of God. There are all kinds of ways the Bible talks about this. Obviously, in Genesis 3, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve, he says, you know, you eat this forbidden fruit and you will be like God. What does it mean to be like God? I don't need God anymore. If I can be like God, then I can be God and I don't need God. Um, it says later on in Deuteronomy um, Every man was doing whatever was right in his own eyes. That's what we naturally desire to do. Even though we might worship God or a God of some kind, we really want a a God who will allow us to do whatever we want to do. We want to be able to do what is right in our own eyes. Psalm 2, a very famous psalm, talks about uh, the rulers of the world Uh, rebelling against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast cast away their cords from us. That's the way I hear things like, make God dead again. We want to cast off the cords of the bondage of having to be accountable to God. And yet, at the same time, you can talk about having some kind of zeal for God in Romans 10. Paul says he's talking about his own people, the Jewish people, and how he grieved for them and prayed for them. He said they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, which is Saul at this point in Acts chapter 9. And then he'll even say in Philippians chapter 3 that uh, I was uh, asked to the law of Pharisee and asked to zeal a persecutor of the church. I was so zealous for God that I, would per- I persecuted the church, and yet I did it wrongly. I was terribly, terribly wrong. And Paul could even say in Ephesians 2 that when we look at Saul and we think about what he did, uh, we should see ourselves. Because he says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So he puts himself in that category as a child of uh, wrath, and he puts everybody in that category, which means Saul's conversion is our conversion. Maybe the um, superficial details are different. We may not be struck down by a light on the road to Damascus, but in essence, at its root, every single conversion is exactly the same. I was saved at an early age, at least by the time I was 12. So that was the second time I was baptized. Um, but was my conversion different than Saul's? No. It may appear more dramatic But in terms of what had to happen in my heart and what had to happen in his heart, it was exactly the same. It's the same for all of us here who have been saved. And that's the interesting thing, is that this conversion story is mentioned three different times in the book of Acts, which, which means it must be really important. It must be something that we need to see ourselves in, that this is our conversion. This is what God did for us. The Bible says, He who is forgiven much, loves much. And that's why we need to see ourselves in the story of Saul. So the next section is verses 10 through 16. And so verses 1 through 9, I think, highlight for us the nature of our natural sinful condition. Verses 10 through 16 highlight the solution to our human condition, which is a change of heart given to us by God. Um, Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and how he was also an atheist like Nietzsche, and yet he was converted. He went from being an atheist to, to being one of the most famous Christian apologists, just like Saul, who was uh, uh, an, someone in opposition to Christianity, who starts preaching the very gospel that he tried to destroy. And the testimony of C.S. Lewis, I think, is similar to what we find in terms of the um, details of the experience to what we see in Acts chapter 9, in that uh, C.S. Lewis could say, you know, I did not want to meet God. I did not want to be saved. I did not want to know God. I did everything I could to run away from God. And yet he said, um, he was in this room in uh, England, and he's trying to work on his uh, work as a professor, and he said, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet was present in that room. And he says, "Uh, finally, I gave in. And I got down and prayed, and I admitted that God was God. he, He would say, I didn't become a Christian at that point. I became a theist at that point, and then later he became a Christian. But up to that point, he was an atheist. He denied God, and he said he was the most deject, dejected and reluctant convert in all England. It wasn't like he said, you know, I was seeking God and I was trying to believe. No, he was running as hard as he could away from God. And in a sense, you could say Saul was doing the same thing. C.S. Lewis says. But who can duly adore, meaning who could appropriately worship and love, that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Do you think Saul... Is that me? Do you think Saul wanted to meet Jesus? Do you think... Saul was excited when he heard. He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, It's Jesus. Do you think he was excited? The reason why I believe he spent three days neither eating nor drinking is because he was in shock. And he probably was initially terrified because he was trying to destroy the people of Jesus. And he began to realize. He was kicking against the pricks. He was fighting against God. And you always lose when you fight against God. He had to be initially terrified at what was going on there. And yet, God's mercy was great, even though his sin was great. His mercy was greater than Saul's sin. And that's what we see taking place in verse It is 10 through 16. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The reality is... God's choice must precede our choice. If point number one is true, if we are naturally haters of God in the sense that we really don't want anything to do with God, we're actually running from God, we actually only want God if he's going to affirm what we want and let us do what we want. Otherwise, we don't want that kind of God who actually is going to exercise authority over us. If that's really true, then how does anybody ever become a Christian? It's not that we just spontaneously, out of nothing, choose to do that, even though we have a heart that hates God, it doesn't want anything to do with God. It takes a change. Of heart, And Jesus here says to Ananias, I want you to go and lay your hands on Saul because I've chosen him. It's not that he's chosen me. I've chosen him. Now, Paul did gladly embrace Jesus. But it was because Jesus first gladly embraced him. It says later on in Acts chapter um, 13, verse 48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. If you notice how that flows, those who were appointed, chosen by God, graciously worked on in their hearts, believed the gospel. You can read John 6, which is a fascinating passage. If you read the latter part of John 6, Jesus says things like this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, why is that? Why will no one come to Jesus unless the Father draws him? Because they don't want Jesus. That's the whole point. You read the book of John, you find over and over again, Jesus says things like, I'm right there in the Bible, but you will not come to me that you might have life. Um, He goes on to say, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So when do sinners turn from their sin and entrust themselves to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, when they're taught of God, when God teaches them graciously and mercifully, which is another way of saying God grants us a change of heart. There are all kinds of scriptures in the Old Testament that talks about how God is going to do that. Um, there's a gift of a heart to know God. In Jeremiah 24, he says, I will give them a heart to know me. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, it says, I, this is God speaking, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God says, I'm going to write my law on their heart. In Jeremiah 32, he says, God says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. So God says, I will give them a heart to fear me. Uh, Then in Ezekiel 11, God says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. God does that in the context of talking about idolatry and the worship of idols and how God is going to give them a heart to worship him instead. It's also reflected uh, later on in Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 36 where God says similar things. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The interesting thing about this passage is God starts out by saying, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Now I think what God means there is, it's not because of something good in you. It's not because you deserve anything good from me. I'm going to graciously give you a new heart, because you don't want me. You don't, you're worshiping idols, you're worshiping other things, but I'm going to give you a heart to worship me that you might have what is really good, namely, me. And so uh, the Bible tells us that our sinful condition is worse than we think. We think we look pretty good, and you take a survey, And most people would say, yeah, I think most people are okay. There there aren't too many serial killers running around or things like that. I think most people are are basically good. And we we have to open the mirror of the word, and it says, well, let's define what good really entails. And let's look at what the Bible actually says about what is natural to us as sinners. And let us look at what the Bible says actually has to happen for us to really turn to Christ. And it tells us that we have to have a change of heart. Now, the next verses in Acts chapter 9, I think, describe for us some of what it looks like to have a changed heart. Um, As I mentioned, um, C.S. Lewis went from being an atheist to being one of the most well-known Christian apologists. And he went from denying God to saying things like this. He said... God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. He said, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. There is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. He said in light of what we've just been talking about, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. He also said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. This is a man who at one time um, would say that he wanted nothing to do with God. Now he says, God's the only one who can ever satisfy my heart. He's the only one that can ever satisfy your heart. That's a radical change. What we see in Acts chapter 9 is a radical change of heart and life. Someone who goes from persecuting the church, he went. Saul went to Damascus to arrest believers who had fled Jerusalem and to take them back to Jerusalem so they could be punished. Now, he could not put them to death, but he wanted somebody to put them to death. That was his heart. And what happens is, the irony of the story is, he goes to Damascus and he ends up preaching the very gospel in those synagogues, uh, the very gospel that he sought to stamp out. And it tells us in verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. Now, what is the significance of the fact that the very first thing we're supposed to do once we've come to Christ in faith is be baptized? Why is that? Well, you can read passages like Romans 6 that talk about the fact that there's a sense in which it pictures for us what Christ did. He lived, he died, was buried, And he rose again. And it's based on faith in his life and death and resurrection that we can be forgiven. But baptism also pictures what actually happened to us when God taught us. When God gave us a new heart, what happened? We go from living to dying to being raised to life. We go from not being alive to God to being alive to God. And it also pictures for us the kind of life that we're going to live. It's a life that no longer lives just to do what I want to do, to do what's right in my own eyes, but I now live to do what's right in the eyes of God. And that's what we see uh, happened to Saul. He went from trying to destroy the church of God to actually proclaiming the gospel. There was a death and a resurrection that took place In his life. And he began to speak well of Christ and of the gospel. It says in verse 19, And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And so he went from blaspheming Jesus to praising Jesus. He went from trying to destroy the church to trying to convince people That Jesus was who he said he was. And indeed, we see that Ananias was sent to Saul to lay his hands on him that he might receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized. And it says earlier in the book of Acts that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, he will give us the gift of utterance. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to give us the gift of speaking in a foreign tongue, but he will loose our tongues speak well of God and of Jesus. And we see that earlier in Acts chapter 2. Going on to verse 23, it says, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket." He went from seeking to kill Christians to being willing to be killed for the sake of Christ. It's a radical change. It's a total change of heart. It means that he was willing to lay down his life, that his faith in Jesus was such that he was willing to die rather than to give up Jesus. And that is ultimately what Jesus says would have to take place. He said at one point in John chapter 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Now, what does it mean to hate your life? It doesn't mean that you want to kill yourself or you want to live a destructive kind of life. It means that you give up living the life that says, I want to do whatever I want to do, and you die to that, that you might live to do do the will of God. That's what it means, and that's what Jesus is talking about. Well, it goes on in verse 26 to say that not only was Saul willing to die for Jesus, he was willing to be misunderstood for Jesus. It says in verse 26, When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. Going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Saul was willing to be misunderstood. He recognized that uh, a lot of Christians were going to doubt whether or not he was truly a Christian, whether or not he was trying to infiltrate the church so that he could somehow uh, arrest them and have them put to death. And it took a while for them to see the fruit in his life. And and yet the fruit was there. In Matthew, uh, the Lord Jesus talks about, <clears throat> you will know them by their fruit. And if you read through the passage in, in Matthew 7, He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And after that, he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So when he says, you will know them by their fruit, and he says, uh, they will do the will of God, and therefore they will obey the word of God or the word of Jesus, you get the idea that what had to take place was for people to see that Saul was now truly following the teachings of Jesus and worshiping Jesus and being faithful to Jesus and his word. And as a result, uh, Barnabas came along and encouraged them to believe that a radical change had truly taken place in Saul's life. So as change sinners, we will live differently, speak differently about God, and we will be willing to be misunderstood and even die for what we believe. And it's because we've been changed by the Holy Spirit. Um, you remember in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And then he says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but, you, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the reality is nobody even sees the truth of the kingdom. Who the king is? Jesus. What he offers? Forgiveness and eternal life. They don't really see that. They don't want that. They don't pursue that unless the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again. And the only way we know that we've been born again by the Spirit, you can't see the wind, but you see the effects of it. So what are the effects of being born of the Spirit? You trust in what Jesus has done, and you're a changed person. You seek to do the will of God, and you seek to please Jesus as your Lord. It says in Romans chapter 8, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so God has to make that kind of change in us. Nobody does that naturally. Nobody does that on their own. It's not because they can't. It's because we won't. Jesus said, remember, you're unwilling to come to me. It's not that we can't trust And Jesus is that we won't. Our can't is a won't. It's not like someone who is um, unable to walk. It's like someone who could walk, but they don't want to. God has to change our desires. And that's the last part of this chapter, I think. We can see how these two miracles that are worked are meant to convey uh, as it prepares us for what is in the next chapter, it also, I believe, points backward to what actually happened in the life of Saul. It was a miracle that Saul became Paul. It was a miracle that you believed in Jesus. It's a miracle that I believed in Jesus. It wasn't just a natural Happenstance. It wasn't that I was smarter than anybody else or that you were smarter than anybody else or you were better than somebody else or you heard a better presentation of the gospel than somebody else has heard. It wasn't any of those things. It was a miracle of God and that is the greatest miracle of all is that anybody comes to believe in Jesus. What we see is what you might call um, so, uh, being pictured here in this latter latter part of the chapter is um, what it takes for us to come to Christ. Uh, Think about this. Imagine if you were born into the uh, family of a baker. And every morning you got up and you uh, smelled fresh bread baking. And you uh, saw all kinds of wonderful breads out there that were going to be sold, and, and you could have some of if you wanted to because your dad was the baker, and yet you got up every morning and you said, ooh, what's that smell? And you looked at the bread and you go, And your parents said, hey, don't you want some of this bread? You say, no, I have no desire for it. No desire for it. You would be unmoved by the smells and the looks of fresh-baked bread all around you. You would be content to live without eating bread. You are dead to bread. As far as you're concerned, I don't want bread as a part of my life. I don't need bread as a part of my life. In fact, even though it's right there in front of me, I live as if it isn't right there in front of me. I'm dead To bread. But the bread is not dead. Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 48 says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. And yet people walk every day smelling that bread, seeing that bread, and yet saying, ooh, what's that smell? Didn't Paul say the gospel is an aroma to those who are being saved? and in a sense, a stench to those who aren't, who don't see it as a good thing, don't see it as um, something that will truly satisfy. Well, in verse 32, it switches over to the story of Peter. It's not Saul being talked about, but but Peter. It says, Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ, heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately got up, and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The Bible does talk in such a way that it talks about us being sick, that we are in some sense spiritually incapacitated. And it basically means... We're not doing what we were created to do. There's another story about, about a paralytic in Mark chapter 2 where four men bring a paralytic and they lower him down into um, the house where Jesus is. And he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus gets some flack for talking about forgiving sins. Isn't God the only one who can forgive sins? And Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. I heal this man physically so that you know that I can heal you spiritually. That's why I heal this man so that he can walk physically Physically, so that you know that I can heal you so that you can walk spiritually. That I have the power to set you free. Later on in that same passage, the Pharisees are coming to the disciples and saying, why is Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, it is not those who are healthy, who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So our sickness, in a sense, is that we cannot and do not naturally do what we are supposed to do as those made in the image of God. So in terms of doing, we don't do what we're supposed to do. But our condition before God, apart from grace, is even worse than that. If you read the rest of the chapter in verse 36, it says, Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lidda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not de- delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Why, why did God, why did Jesus raise the physically dead? As a picture of what is required for us to be alive spiritually. He has to raise us from the dead. You know the story of Lazarus, Lazarus is in the tomb four days, and Jesus specifically says, Lazarus, come forth. He calls him by name, and the dead gets up. There's a sense in which God tells us, get up, take your pallet and go home, get up and make your bed, and we do it. Another sense in which he also says to us, Milan, come forth. And Milan comes forth. She comes from death to life. So there's an interesting passage in um, the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel 37. It's the uh, Valley of the Bones passage that I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, That is a picture of God's work in the nation of Israel, but ultimately pointing to uh, his work in individual uh, lives and saving them as well. And you've got this valley that's full of just bones, skeletons. And there are many bones and there are dry bones. There's no flesh, nothing on them. And God tells Ezekiel, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. When it says these bones were dry, it means there's no life in these bones. They're dead as dead can be. But he says, Ezekiel, speak to these bones and I will give them life. As sinners, we are all sick and dead unable to save ourselves, and unwilling to come to God for mercy. That's what it means to be dead. I'm unwilling to come to God for mercy. I'm unwilling to confess my sin and trust in Christ. That's why we have probably the most classic description of our salvation in Ephesians chapter 2, when it says, "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world." according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You notice he talks about dead men walking, living, walking according to the course of this world, living in the lust of our flesh. But we're dead in what sense? We have no desire for God. We're content to live without the bread. We're just going through our day. It doesn't matter how, quote, good we are, what kind of upstanding citizen we are, we're dead to the God who created us. We're okay to live without him, and yet it says it's grace. What does it mean to be saved by grace? It means God raises me from the dead and no longer allows me to be content to live without him, no longer allows me to remain under his wrath but gives me a heart of faith, which is his grace. So when we talk about grace, we have to ask ourselves, how gracious has God been? He's been gracious enough to raise us from the dead, to love us when we hated him, to give us what we didn't want so we could have what we really wanted. That's how gracious God has been to us. So what should we do? Parsley Sproul said, The essence of Christian theology is grace. The essence of Christian ethics is gratitude because grace is the unmerited favor of God. So we should, first of all, thank God for grace. If you believe in Jesus, thank him for grace and meditate on that and think about it because he who has forgiven much loves much. We need to embrace this that we might love God more and be more thankful for what he's done. In our lives. Secondly, speak the truth in love to dry bones. There are dry bones all around you. People that are content to live without the true God as revealed in Jesus. Speak the truth in love with gentleness, kindness, patience to dry bones because God raises the dead, God saves people like Saul. And we might know people like that in our lives. And to some degree, in some sense, everyone who's not saved is just like that. Thirdly, if you were to say, well, I think I'm in that category of someone who's never really trusted in Christ, what do you do? Well, it's interesting, in Ezekiel 18, uh, God talks to Rebellious Israel. And says, repent and turn away from your transgressions. So that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed. And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore repent and live. God speaks to the dead and says, make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. He basically says, I am able and willing to save you. Ask me, turn to me, come to me for life. If there's anything within someone that says, I desire to be saved, then you can know that God is ready to save you because he says, I do not desire the death of anyone who dies apart from me. And the final thing is, in light of the salvation of Saul, we should see that every single sinner should be encouraged. Because this is what Saul, who became Paul, said about his conversion. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. He says, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. He says, I'm the foremost sinner of all. And if God is able and willing to save me, he's able and willing to save you. Turn to him, ask for mercy. That's the gospel we proclaim. And that's the good news to every person who has not yet come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that you would help us to see ourselves in the mirror of your word. Help us to see where we stand before you this morning. We pray for anyone here this morning who has not yet trusted in Christ, that you would open their eyes to see and grant them grace to do just that, and that they would know that you, Lord Jesus, are an able and willing Savior for all of us. And for those of us who have believed, I pray that we would see even deeper, more richly, what you've actually done that we might see that we've been forgiven much. And I pray that we would love you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've trusted Christ,